Joseph, the son of Jacob, grandson of Isaac, and great-grandson of Abraham, has died. At the ripe old age of 110, Joseph is embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation have died. But the Israelites are exceedingly fruitful. They multiply greatly, increase in numbers, and become so numerous that the land is filled with them. A new king, a pharaoh of Egypt, has come to power who does not know Joseph and his family nor care anything about their history together. He sees them instead as a threat to power since they're so numerous and they're uncontrolled. He fears that they'll join forces with their enemies and go to war against them and then leave the country. So he places slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they are oppressed, the more they multiply and spread. So the Egyptians come to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They are worked to the bone, yet they multiply and spread So the pharaoh needs to develop a new plan. Slavery hasn't worked to control the people, so he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all Hebrew baby boys. But the midwives fear God and not Pharaoh, so they don't obey. They let the boys live. When Pharaoh demands them to give an account for their actions and their lack of success, they reply, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And then these midwives proceed to have families of their own. Pharaoh's second plan clearly hasn't worked. So he comes up with a third plan to ensure his control over the Hebrew people. He orders his own people to throw into the Nile River every baby boy that's born. This is no light-hearted story, and we're just starting. The lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is about to be erased from history, all because of a fearful king who needs control. But one Hebrew mother is not caught by, by Pharaoh's people and manages to find a way to keep her son secret for three months But when she can hide him no longer, she gets a papyrus basket for him and coats it with tar and pitch. What's interesting about this Hebrew word for basket, teva, it's the same word that's used in Genesis for the big old ark that Noah built. An ark saved Noah and his family, and a small ark saved this little baby. And an interesting fact, in case you hadn't heard it, Many churches are built in the shape of an ark, just upside down. We have it too. The baby's mother sends her son along the Nile River in hopes that he might have a future, and his sister stands by to watch. Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the Nile, and she sees a basket in the reeds. So she sends her slave to go down and see what's in this basket. The slave has compassion on this baby, and this baby has lost it. This baby is crying. She feels sorry for the baby, and she tells Pharaoh's daughter that this is one of the Hebrew babies. 
But instead of throwing the baby out of the basket and into the Nile, which is the command, Pharaoh's daughter disobeys her dad, and she takes a big risk. For some reason, she decides to save this baby. She agrees to have a Hebrew woman nurse him for her, who just so happens to be the baby's mother. He's returned to her when he's weaned, and she names him Moses, which means drawn out. Moses is drawn out of the river, which was to be his death, and instead he's given life. He grows up knowing who he is, a Hebrew in a position of privilege, and perhaps, just perhaps, his adoptive mother is the one who instilled his identity in him. Her behavior was non-compliant with her father's wishes from the beginning. Instead of killing the baby by throwing him into the Nile, she adopted him. She's non-compliant from the beginning, so maybe she was the one who told him who he was. It's possible. But of course, the story is not about her. But interestingly enough, this foreign woman is essential to the salvation story of God's people. Moses grows up knowing who he is, knowing that he's in a unique position of power, yet his own people are oppressed. In defense of a Hebrew slave, he kills an Egyptian and then buries his body in the sand. When his adoptive grandfather, the Pharaoh, catches wind of what he's done, Moses flees all the way to Midian. Not a close journey. He makes for a life for himself while he's in Midian. He marries and has children. And he's away for quite some time, and clearly he has no intention of going back. Because by the time that he finally goes back, he's an octogenarian. He's 80 years old. During that long time away, the Pharaoh has died. The Israelites groan in their slavery and cry out, and their cry for help because of their slavery goes up to God. God hears their groaning and remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looks at the Israelites and is concerned about them. So he chooses one who will bring his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. But like every hero's story and most of the call stories in Scripture, the invitation to the journey is utterly refused. When God appears to Moses from the burning bush, Moses tries rejecting the call of God four times before God finally kicks him out of the nest. Moses tries telling God that this is a terrible plan because Moses is unfit for the task, the people are ignorant of the character of God, Moses won't be accepted by the people, and fourthly, he feels that he will be completely incapable because of his lack of eloquence and slow tongue. But God has chosen Moses, regardless of all of these obstacles that Moses likes to present. But also, in response to Moses hemming and hawing, God makes an interesting decision. He chooses Moses' 83-year-old brother, Aaron, to be his mouthpiece. 
Now, the Hollywood image that we have been given is a picture of a vigorous, youthful man that just so happens to have white hair, with his trusty, mostly unnecessary sidekick, Aaron, kind of like a Batman-Robin scenario. But Moses is a stammering 80-year-old who would rather do anything than what God has called him to do, and he needs his 83-year-old brother to come to his aid. So the picture looks a little more like this. There is so much in this story that makes success truly remarkable. Moses is hidden by his mom, saved by Pharaoh's daughter, raised knowing his identity, spared by running away, confronted by a god in a, in a burning bush that he can't avoid, given the support of his brother and the promise of God that he'll be successful. At the same time, the Israelites have cried out suddenly because of their bondage, and God has chosen to act, to respond now, and he's chosen Moses. But God's deliverance of his people won't be so simple. God will harden Pharaoh's heart, who will not release the Israelites until after ten devastating plagues have taken place. Now, it's tempting to go through the mental gymnastics to try to figure out what exactly God means when it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Take, for example, Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Okay, so does God mean that he will take over Pharaoh's will? And though Pharaoh may be inclined to let the Israelites go, God will harden his heart anyway. Does it mean that this is more of just a matter of speech, that God actually won't do anything, that Pharaoh's heart will be hard anyway, but God just takes credit for it? Or is there some sort of interplay of both, that Pharaoh is naturally inclined to hardness of heart, and God lets it happen or sometimes somehow kind of coaxes it along or moves him to hardness of heart? These are fascinating questions that I really like to ask. Uh, but what's even more fascinating is that Exodus doesn't explain this at all. Typical of Scripture. Exodus instead offers ten references to God hardening Pharaoh's heart and then ten references of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And also, instead of any sort of ex explanation, the emphasis is on simply Pharaoh's hardness of heart being the very mechanism through which God can save his people. God says in Exodus 7, verse 5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. God's purpose in delivering the Israelites is twofold. So that God will be proven faithful to his covenant, his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that Egypt too will know that he is God. God's purpose is for his chosen people, it's for Israel, 
It's for the entire world. As God told Abraham, he has chosen his line to be a blessing and a light to the nations. And though in Exodus they are suffering under harsh oppression, God has heard their cries and he has sent a deliverer so that they could be a blessing and a light to the nations. But deliverance wouldn't come cheaply. It would come after ten devastating plagues, the final one being the death of the firstborn children and animals. Those spared would be the ones obedient to God's call to celebrate the Passover by killing a perfect one-year-old lamb and placing its blood on the doorposts of their home while a plague passed over their homes. The truth is, you and I really would rather believe that God can accomplish God's purposes without pain and death in these kind of situations. This is the hard part of the story. So we try to negotiate. And amazingly, this is something that God is willing to do, according to Scripture. God is willing to negotiate. But the moment we begin to prescribe how God can and can't work, we are placing ourselves as a God over God. As much as it's painful to admit, you and I are not God. You and I don't make the rules. God is who God is, and God acts how God acts, whether or not we give him permission. As Catholic writer Evelyn Underhill wrote, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. And as theologian and pastor Al Rognes wrote, I must never cease to tremble before his judgment. I must never cease to rest in the overarching mercy of his love. If I lose either, I lose God. I must never cease to tremble before his judgment. I must never cease to rest in the overarching mercy of his love. If I lose either, I lose God. The way God has chosen to work in the deliverance of Exodus, his salvation for his people, came at a great cost. It came at the cost of many lives. In Exodus, the costly death of a perfect one-year-old lamb would allow firstborn animals and children to live. And in the New Testament, the cost of the perfect lamb was the sacrifice once and for all for the salvation and forgiveness of sins for the entire world. Because of Jesus' death on the cross for you, you are forgiven. Because of his blood shed for you, you are forgiven. The powers of sin, death, and the devil were broken in that sacrifice of his blood on the cross. And all who believe in him will have eternal life, not because of anything that you or I have done or will ever do, but because of his incredible love for you. Because God in his credible love did not spare even his own son so that he could be a ransom for many. Praise be to God. Amen. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, you are so big, and we like to make you small. We like to feel like we have a corner on how you work and how you should and shouldn't work, and we don't. We thank you that you are bigger than us, bigger than for us to fully comprehend on this side of eternity, because then you are big enough to be worshipped, and that means that you are big enough to have a much bigger purview than we have. God, we thank you for your care to respond. You came down and brought a deliverer when your people were in slavery, in bondage. And you came down in your very son, your only son, Jesus, so that we might have life. We thank you for his sacrifice, and we pray that, that we would know you more fully and worship you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.